This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 2 God's Restraining Hand versus Total Depravity To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5. Why did Paul require the Corinthian church to cast the incestuous person out of the church? To deliver him into the power of Satan. Later, the man did return to the church. The church's discipline of excommunication worked to restore a lost sinner to his God. 2 Corinthians 2, 6-11 God did the same thing with Israel time after time, and for the same reason. When they worshipped foreign gods, he delivered them into the hands of cruel foreign nations that worshipped those gods. As James Jordan writes of the periods of bondage described in the book of Judges, Israel had become enslaved to the Canaanite gods. It was therefore logical and necessary that they also become enslaved to the Canaanite culture. In effect, God said, So you like the gods of Ammon? Well then, you're going to just love being under Ammonite culture. He did this in order to break the rebellion and get them to return to him. Oh, you don't like being in bondage to Ammon? You'd like to have me as your god once again? Wonderful. I'll send a judge who will have my son as his captain and set you free from Ammon. God in His grace refuses to allow men in history to walk fully consistently with their own evil hearts. But in His wrath, He may give them more slack on His chain of restraint, allowing them to impose a wider circle of destruction. He does this as a prelude to judgment, either judgment unto restoration, for example, Israel in Babylon, or judgment unto oblivion, for example, Sodom. When He lets them go, allowing them in history to approach, though never fully reach, the total, comprehensive depravity in their hearts, he thereby brings them into judgment in history. Let me say it again. When God releases a person to his own devices, as he did with that sinner in the Corinthian church, he thereby begins to bring him under under judgment. He ceases to restrain a person from committing evil. When God ceases to restrain the evil that men want to commit, they will eventually fall under some form of earthly judgment. Perhaps the best example of this is venereal disease. Strict monogamy is the only successful, long-term, prophylactic against venereal disease. God sometimes removes people from the protection of His law, which is designed to restrain evil. Romans 13, 1-7 Biblical law is a means of grace. Biblical law is a means of grace. Common grace to those who are perishing, special grace to those who are regenerate. We all benefit from God's extension of blessings to us when we are externally faithful to the external terms of the covenant. To use the example of venereal disease again, when most people are monogamous, they are protected from the spread of these killer diseases. Ethical rebels, who in other areas of their lives disobey biblical law, at least remain free from this particular scourge. Or to use the example of Matthew 5, when God sends good weather, 
sinners enjoy it too. Biblical law is also a form of curse. Special curse to those who are perishing. Common curse to those who are regenerate. We are all under the legal requirements of God's covenant as men. And because of the curse on the creation, we suffer the temporal burdens of Adam's transgression. The whole world labors under this curse. Romans 8, 18-23 Nevertheless, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28 The common curse on nature is not a special curse on God's people. As men, we are all under the law of the covenant and the restraint of its law, both physical and personal law, and we can use this knowledge of law either to bring us external blessings through obedience or to rebel and bring destruction. But we know also that all things work together for evil for them that hate God, to them who are the rejected according to his purpose. Romans nine seventeen through 22 Common grace, common curse, special grace, special curse. We must affirm all four. The transgression of biblical law. The transgression of biblical law brings a special curse to the unregenerate. It is a curse of eternal duration. But this same transgression brings only a common curse to God's people. A Christian gets sick. He suffers losses. He is blown about by the storm. He suffers sorrow. But he does not suffer the second death. Revelation 2.11, 20 and 6.14 Perhaps his nation suffers a plague or a military defeat because of the sinfulness of most of his neighbors and his nation's rulers. For the believer, the common curses of life are God's chastening, signs of God's favor. Hebrews 12.6 The difference between common curse and special curse is not found in the intensity of human pain or the extent of any loss. The difference lies in God's attitude towards those who are laboring under the external and psychological burdens. There is an attitude of favor towards God's people, but none toward the unregenerate. The common curse of the unregenerate person is, in fact, a part of the special curse under which he will labor forever. The common curse of the regenerate person is a part of the special grace in terms of which he finally prospers. The common curse is nonetheless common, despite its differing effects on the eternal state of men. The law of God is sure. God does not respect persons, Romans 2.11, with one exception, the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was perfect, yet he was punished. For the sake of all creation, Christ was singled out by God to be mistreated. God respected Christ's person in a unique way by showing public disrespect to Christ on the day of the crucifixion and the following day in the grave. He deserted his own righteous son in public. So Jesus called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46b. Then came the resurrection. Restraining man's self-hatred. If the effects of biblical law are common in cursing, then the effects of biblical law are also common in grace. This is why we need a doctrine of common grace. This doctrine gives meaning to the doctrine of common curse, and vice versa. The law of God restrains men in their evil ways, whether regenerate or unregenerate. The law of God restrains the old man, Colossians 3.8, or old sin nature in Christians. The law's restraint of evil is therefore a true blessing for all men. In fact, it is even a temporary blessing for Satan and his demons. All those who hate God love death, Proverbs 8.36b. This hatred of God and 
itself is restrained during history. Evil men are given knowledge, law, power, life, and time that they do not deserve. Satan receives these same gifts. But evil creatures cannot fully work out the implications of their rebellious, suicidal faith, for God's lawful restraints will not permit it. The common grace which restrains the totally depraved character of Satan and all his followers is, in fact, part of God's special curse on them. Every gift returns to condemn them on the day of judgment, heaping coals of fire on their heads. On the other hand, the common grace of God in law also must be seen as a part of the program of special grace to his people. God's special gifts to his people, person by person, are the source of varying rewards on the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 3.11-15 Similarly, common grace serves to condemn the rebels proportionately to the benefits they have received on earth, and it serves as the opening operating backdrop for the special grace given to God's people. The laws of God offer a source of order, power, and dominion. Some men use this common grace to their ultimate destruction, while others use it to their eternal benefit. It is nonetheless common, despite its differing effects on the eternal state of men. The Good That Men Do The Bible teaches that there is no good thing inherent in fallen man. His heart is wicked and deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9 All our self-proclaimed righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Isaiah 64.6 Nevertheless, we also know that history has meaning, that there are permanent standards that enable us to distinguish the life of God-hating communist Joseph Stalin from the life of God-hating pantheist Albert Schweitzer. There are different punishments for different unregenerate men, Luke 12.45-48. This does not mean that God in some way favors one lost soul more than another. It only means that in the eternal plan of God, there must be an eternal affirmation of the validity and permanence of His law. It is worse to be a murderer than a liar or a thief. Not every sin is a sin unto death, but some are. 1 John 5, 16 and 17 History is not some amorphous, undifferentiated mass. It is not an illusion. It has implications for eternity. Therefore, the law of God stands as a reminder to unregenerate men that it is better to conform in part than not to conform at all, even though the end result of rebellion is destruction. There are degrees of punishment according to men's knowledge, Luke twelve, forty seven and forty eight. God restrains the innate and total depravity of man in history. Van Til writes However, God not only gives good gifts to men in general, he not only calls men with the good news of the gospel to a renewed acceptance of their original task, he also restrains the wrath of man. He keeps the negative, and therefore destructive, force of sin from breaking out in the fullness of its powers. All men everywhere are kept from working out self-consciously their own adopted principle as covenant breakers and as children of wrath. But none of them have reached maturity in sinning. Because of this restraint, evil men can do good things. And in restraining him in his ethical hostility to God, God releases his creaturely powers so that he can make positive contributions to the field of knowledge and art. This benefits redeemed men through the division of labor. People who are spiritually evil can nevertheless perform morally good acts. Similarly, in restraining him from expressing his ethical hostility to God, 
there is a release within him of his moral powers so that they can perform that which is morally, though not spiritually, good. But what is the source of the good that evil men do? It can be no other than God, James 1.17. He is the source of all good. He restrains men in different ways, and the effects of this restraint, person to person, demon to demon, can be seen throughout all eternity. Not favored toward the unregenerate, but rather perfect justice of law and total respect toward the law of God on the part of God himself, are the sources of the good deeds that men who are lost may accomplish in time and on earth. The Knowledge of the Law The work of the law is written on every man's heart. There is no escape. No man can plead ignorance, Romans 2, 11-14. But each man's history does have meaning, and some men have been given clearer knowledge than others, Luke 12, 47 and 48. There is a common knowledge of the law, yet there is also special knowledge of the law, historically unique in the life of each man. Each man will be judged by the deeds that he has done, by every word that he has uttered, Romans 2.6 and Matthew 12.36. God testifies to his faithfulness, to his word, by distinguishing every shade of evil and good in every man's life, saved or lost. Time for the Canaanites. Perhaps a biblical example can clarify these issues. God gave the people who dwelt in the land of Canaan an extra generation of sovereignty over their, their land. The slave mentality of the Hebrews with the exceptions of Joshua and Caleb, did not permit them to go in and conquer the land. Israel's sinfulness became a factor in Canaan's history, the basis of a stay of execution. Furthermore, God specifically revealed to Israel that he would drive the Canaanites out city by city, year by year, so that the wild animals could not take over the land, leaving it desolate. Exodus 23, 27-30 Did this reveal God's favor toward the Canaanites? Hardly. He instructed the Hebrews to destroy them, root and branch. They were to be driven out of their land forever. Exodus 23, 32-33 Nevertheless, this, they did receive a temporal blessing, an extra generation or more of peace. This kept the beasts in their place. It allowed the Hebrews to mature under the law of God. It also allowed the Hebrews to heap coals of fire on the heads of their enemies. For as God told Abraham, the Hebrews would not take control of the promised land in his day, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis 15:16. During that final generation, the iniquity of the Amorites was filled to the brim. Then came destruction. The Canaanites did receive more than they deserved. They stayed in the land of their fathers for an extra generation. Were they beneficiaries? Yes. During the days of wandering for the Hebrews, the Canaanites were beneficiaries. Then the final payment, culturally speaking, came due, and it was exacted by God through his people, just as the Egyptians had learned to their woe. They cared for the land until the Hebrews were fit to take possession of it. As the Bible affirms, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Proverbs 13.22b But this in no way denies the value of the sinner's wealth during the period in which he controls it. It is a gift from God that he has anything at all. God has restrained sinners from dispersing their wealth in a flurry of suicidal destruction. He lets them serve as caretakers until the day that it is transferred to the regenerate. The Gibeonites did escape destruction. They were wise enough to see that God's people could not be beaten. They tricked Joshua into making a treaty with them. 
The result was their perpetual bondage as menial laborers. laborers. But they received life and the right to pursue happiness. Although they forfeited liberty, they were allowed to live under the restraints of God's law, a far better arrangement culturally than they had lived under before the arrival of the Hebrews. They became the recipients of the cultural blessings given to the Hebrews, and perhaps some of them became faithful to God. In that case, what had been a curse on all of them, servitude, became a means of special grace. Their deception paid off, Joshua 9. Only these Hivites of Gibeon escaped destruction, Joshua 11:20. Time for Adam and Eve In the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge, they died spiritually. God had told them they would die on that very day, but they did not die physically. They may or may not have been individually regenerated by God's Spirit, but they were unquestionably the beneficiaries of a promise, Genesis 3.15. They were to be allowed to have children. Before, before time began, God had ordained the crucifixion. Christ was in a sense slain from the very beginning, Revelation 13.8. God, therefore, granted Adam and Eve time on earth. He extended their lease on life. Had they not sinned, they would have been able to own eternal life. God greatly blessed them, and their murderous son Cain with a stay of execution. God respected Christ's work on the cross. Christ became a Savior to Cain. Not a personal Savior or regenerating Savior, but a Savior of his life. God granted Cain protection. Genesis 4.15 One of the tasks of a Savior. Meaning in History Once again, we see that history has meaning. History has meaning and purpose because God has a plan for history. God has a decree. He grants favors to rebels, but not because he is favorable to them. He respects his son, and his son died for the whole world, John 3.16. He died to save the world, meaning to give it additional time, life, and external blessings more than it deserved. He died to become a savior in the same sense as that described in the first part of 1 Timothy 4.10. Not a special savior, but a sustaining, restraining Savior. God dealt mercifully with Adam and Adam's family because he had favor for his chosen people, those who received the blessings of salvation. But that salvation is expressly historical in nature. Christ died in history for his people. They are regenerated in history for their sake. He therefore preserves the earth and gives all men, including ethical rebels, additional time. With respect to God's restraint of the total depravity of men, Consider his curse of the ground, Genesis three seventeen through 19 Man must labor in the sweat of his brow in order to eat. The earth gives up her fruits, but only through labor. Still, this common curse also involves common grace. Men are compelled to cooperate with each other in a world of scarcity if they wish to increase their income. They may be murderers in their hearts, but they must restrain their emotions and cooperate. The division of labor makes possible the specialization of production. This, in turn, promotes increased wealth for all those who labor. Men are restrained by scarcity, which appears to be a one-sided curse. Not so. It is equally a blessing. This is the meaning of common grace. Common curse and common grace go together until the final judgment. After that, there is no more common grace or common curse. There is eternal separation. The cross is the best example of the, of the fusion of grace and curse. Christ was totally cursed on the cross. At the same time, this was God's act of incomparable grace. Justice and mercy are linked at the cross. Christ died, thereby experiencing the cross common to all men. 
Yet through that death, Christ propitiated God's wrath. The cross is a source of common grace on earth. Life, law, order, power, as well as a source of special grace. The common curse of the cross, death that is common to all mankind, led to a special grace for God's people. Yet it also is a source of additional time, common grace which makes history possible. Christ's common curse on the cross, physical death, and his special curse, separation from God, led to the special grace of salvation to God's people and the common grace of life. The cross is therefore the source of life, common grace. Christ suffered the first death and the second death, separation. Not to save his people from the first death, for every person dies, and not to save the unregenerate from the second death of the lake of fire, Revelation 20.14. He suffered the first death and the second death to satisfy the penalty of sin. The first death, which Adam did not immediately pay, since he did not die physically on the day that he sinned. And also the second death, God's people will never perish. Let go and let Satan. At some time in the future, God will cease to restrain men's evil. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-12 Just as he gave up Israel to their lusts, Psalm eighty-one twelve, and 106, 15 So shall he give up the unregenerate who are presently held back from part of the evil that they would do. This does not necessarily mean that the unregenerate will then crush the people of God. In fact, it means precisely the opposite. When God ceased to restrain the sins of Israel, Israel grew very evil and then was invaded, defeated, and scattered. The very act of releasing them from his restraint allowed God to let them fill up their own cup of iniquity. The end result of God's releasing Israel was their fall into iniquity, rebellion, and impotence. Acts 7, 42-43 They were scattered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and finally the Romans. The Christian church thereby became the heir to God's kingdom. Matthew twenty one forty three. The Romans two were given up to their own lusts, Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. Though it took three centuries, they were finally replaced by the Christians. The pagan Roman Empire collapsed. The Christians picked up the pieces. When God ceases to restrain men from the evil that they are capable of committing, this seals their doom. Separated from restraint, they violate the work of the law that is written in their hearts, Romans 2, 14-15. Rebelling against God's law, men lose God's tool of cultural dominion. Men who see themselves as being under law can then use the law to achieve their ends. Antinomian, anti-biblical law, rebels rush headlong into impotence. For, denying that they are under the law and law's restraints, they thereby throw away the crucial tool of external conquest and external blessings. They rebel and are destroyed. Conclusion Men are totally depraved in principle, but not in history. They are in total rebellion in principle, but not in history. They are also depraved comprehensively. Everything they are is evil in principle. All their righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. The Hebrew word for filthy is even more graphic. This is why all men need God's comprehensive redemption. God definitively heals every aspect of men's lives at the point in time when he regenerates them. He makes them perfect morally in principle, but not in history. They are no longer totally depraved in principle. They are perfect men in principle. He heals them completely in principle, but not in history. 
This definitive sanctification then produces the progressive sanctification, setting men apart morally throughout their lives. Christians work out in history what they are in principle, just as the ethical rebels work out in history what they are in principle. Neither Christ's perfect humanity in his people nor Satan's total depravity in his people is ever manifested in history. Even Satan's total depravity develops in history. Sin is never overcome fully until the resurrection of the Day of Judgment. Similarly, God restrains the historical outworking of sin in men's lives until the Day of Judgment. Then, sin-cursed history ends. Biblical law is both a means of grace, common and special, and a means of curse, common and special. Men's responses to the terms of biblical law bring temporal blessings and temporal cursings. Deuteronomy 28 these responses also bring varying eternal blessings, 1 Corinthians 3.11-15, and varying eternal cursings, Luke 12.47-48. The effects of covenant keeping are general in common grace, and the effects of covenant breaking are equally general in common cursing. There are evil people who get rich in a growing economy, and there are good people who get killed in losing wars. But when biblical law restrains evil doing, all men are blessed. History has meaning. The good that evil men do counts for them eternally, and the evil that righteous men do counts against them eternally. The basis of meaning in history is judged by the standard of biblical law. Biblical law judges all men in all institutions. All men are held accountable to God. Unredeemed men have the work of the law written in their hearts, while Christians have the law itself written in their hearts. This is why the cross has meaning in history. It combines common curse and common grace. Special curse and special grace. Christ died in order to make history possible, to reduce the historic judgment of God against rebellious mankind. This has benefited covenant breakers and covenant keepers alike. Cooperation among men becomes possible by means of, of Christ's sacrifice. Christ also died to bring eternal life to his people. When God, at the end of the millennial age, gives up unregenerate people to their lusts, they will revolt against him, and the final judgment will come. In summary, number one, law is a means of grace. Number two, law is the basis of the curses. Number three, there are common grace and special grace. Number four, there are common curse and special curse. Number five, common grace condemns rebels even more. Number six, evil men do good through God's common grace. Number seven, God's law is known specially and commonly. Number eight, external faithfulness to the law brings external blessings. Number nine, the cross brings salvation to history. Number ten, the law brings meaning to history. Number eleven, common grace makes possible human cooperation in history. And twelve, when God ceases to restrain a covenant-breaking culture, it is destroyed. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.